0: Today's Hope FM Breakfast Show is brought to you by Chester Pierce Funeral Service. For individual support, as unique as your loved one, visit ChesterPierce.com. Well, the time is 14 minutes after 8 o'clock, and our very special guest is uh, James uh, uh, Wiltshire, and he's the producer of a soon-to-be-released 20-minute YouTube documentary on the Cory Ten Boom story that The Hiding Place, a wartime story of Christian courage in the face of Hitler's evil empire in Holland. Now, I'm pretty sure that I haven't summed up that enough. So for the completely uninitiated, uh, James, tell us a wee bit about the, the, the Ten Booms.
1: The Ten Booms were a Dutch family that came to prominence for the kind of resistance work that they did during the years of Hitler. Uh, He was a tremendous threat to the Jews. He'd decided that he was going to, uh, as it were, single them out, along with one or two other small groups. But predominantly his target for eradication as a nation were the Jews. And this particular family, living in occupied Holland um, after 1940, uh, had to make that moral choice... Do we succumb to the dominant uh, philosophy at the time or do we do what our conscience says and do we withstand the state and do we help these Jews? In other words, do we put our lives on the line? And the story essentially starts from that point and it builds in the sense that Step-by-step, step, they have to make moral decisions which involve not just their own lives but other people associated with them. So that by the time they were captured in, in 1944 and prevented from doing any further work of this kind, uh, they had in fact helped over 800 Jews and saved them from the gas chambers.
0: And of course, that story was made into um a, had in a few movies, wasn't it yes. but probably the one that maybe most people will have seen is is the Billy Graham uh, organization's version called the Hiding place, and of course, also there was the book the Hiding place uh, Have you been to Ravensbrück? yes I, I mean, can you describe what that experience was like for you i think I think
1: when you go to any of these kind of concentration camps or extermination camps as Ravensbrück became because at a certain point uh, in the history of uh, removing people from society the various camps of whatever description they were, whether they were transit camps, whether they were labour camps or whether they were actually designed as extermination camps there came a point when all of them were supplied with not just a crematorium, but a gas chamber. And I think, therefore, that whichever of these kind of camps you visit, you're struck by what I can only describe as Hitler's death culture. Hmm. Now, when I got to Ruffensbrook, there are various things that you have to mentally have to adjust to, you have to adjust to the time, you have to be able to think, well now is now and I can see what remains because it has been preserved very well by the German government and I, I salute their courage in doing that. But when you get there, you've also got to, as it were, try to look at things through the eyes of history, it may be a film, it may be a book, it may be just your own powers of observation and thought. And you look at the scene before you and you think, yes, but this is now void of people. There were thousands of people concentrated, herded together in this, in this area that I'm looking at. And so you begin to put those two impressions together and you think, well... All these people were herded together. They were from different nations. They were from different backgrounds. They weren't all Jews. Some of them were Gentiles. Some of them were dissidents. Some of them were gypsies. Some of them were coming in from, uh, from Poland, which was a country that Hitler looked down on. He regarded them, the Polish particularly, as untermensch, you know, under subhuman beings. And when you think that those people were all herded together in this area... And then you break it down, you look at the barracks and you think, yes, but those people were all herded together in those barracks and somehow they had to get on. You know, and there are moving incidents when you get to the displays at Ravensbrook and you read accounts in their various displays of how new inmates were going to be received. I mean, the barracks were already bulging and they were full of lice and fleas. Mm. And then suddenly the door would open, the guard would stand there and say, right, you've got to absorb another 300 people. They've just come in on a transport. Well, the question is, where are you going to put them? Mm -hmm. The beds are already full, so there's only one place you go. Either they fight for beds or they all lie on the floor. Well, human nature being what it is the weak suffer every time and so the, it's the weak who are in the beds that end up on the floor and the strong ones end up in the beds. Hmm. So you get all these types and then of course there's the uh, there's the fight for food. You know food was mm. so severely rationed, they were on starvation starvation rations and yet they were expected to work hard. Well naturally that's a difficult equation. So that brings out the worst in human nature. Hmm. So in a morning, say four o'clock in the morning, when when the bell went, and they were uh, summoned for work, the first thing I had to do was go and try and get whatever breakfast there was. Well, the first in the queue got what was there, and those in the back end of the queue got perhaps even nothing. So, a- again, when you look at what human nature can be reduced to, within. A relatively small area of Germany, then you begin to see how that death culture begins to work, not just at the point of death, not just at the point of being gassed or being cremated, but it, it begins to invade the psyche of the prisoner almost from the word go. The question is, do you have hope or do you not? Do you
0: give up? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, uh, well, I'm, I'm intrigued to know that, James, obviously we've already said that the, 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 the movie has, has been made a couple of times. Uh, now, you're making a documentary, but of all the things that you could be doing as a filmmaker, why have you chosen to do this particular story in the form of a documentary?
1: It has been made very successfully as a movie. But... However good a movie is, they they all date. Because filmmaking techniques change. And as you look at a film that's made, let's say, 30 years ago, to a modern and particularly a youthful audience, it may look dated. Because the actual ways of filming, although there are classical ways of recording actors... Nevertheless, I think particularly you get the editing and that's done very differently now. It's much faster, the editing, and a lot more is left to the imagination of the viewer than it was. So as I looked at this wonderful, excellent film that the Billy Graham people produced... um, I know they, they would agree with me that there are, in certain respects it does look a little bit dated. And when I first started doing the research for this, in fact, I contacted the producer of that film. Now, he was then retired and living off in Hawaii, but we had a very good chat over the phone. And his reaction to my wanting to make even a documentary was, look, it does need updating it does need restating in more modern terms. You know, we enjoyed doing it at the time and we felt that we had made a good contribution to people's understanding and Christian understanding. But nevertheless, there's always room for another another look. And mine is different in the sense that it's not a major film. It's only a documentary. In other words, it's relatively easy, relatively cheap to produce. Um I think the other attraction for me was the opportunity to do the research. Now, I quite like doing the research. In fact, that's a large part of the fun of filming. Um, Mm -hmm. Probably... Making up the storyboard. picking (laughs) Mm -hmm. Picking up the story and working out how you're going to do it rather than actually doing it because that can become almost a mechanical process because you've done the thinking in advance and you've written the diagrams and you think, yes, I can envisage that and so consequently um, you you, you, you get involved in the research now the research for this particular documentary even though it's short was quite extensive I mean I had to go to Holland and the plan I adopted there was to as it were follow the footsteps of the Ten Boom family Uh, so In other words, I I looked at the house where they conducted the operation of saving the Jews. Then, after that... Has that been preserved then, James? Oh, yes. Yes, it's all there. And if you go there, I mean, you get a tremendous welcome. Uh, The people who are running, it's now called a museum, the Ten Boom Museum, and it's in uh, Harlem which is about 20 miles away from Amsterdam. So it's not very far. It's easy to get to. But when you get there, you find that the people running that are really interested in, in telling the story of, of this particular family. And they'll go to quite long lengths in, in order to help you with your understanding of it, so that you conducted tours, that kind of thing. So after that, I then, as it were, traced their footsteps from the point of arrest at the the place uh, in Holland, and I then followed them to the maximum security prison in The Hague. It's got an almost unpronounceable name. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) I mean, I'll try to say it's (laughs) Scheveningen or or something like that. But the Dutch have a particular way of saying it. And indeed, during the war, it was the way that the Dutch could tell whether the person was German or Dutch he could impersonate uh, a, 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 a Dutch person reasonably well. So they tested him on, this partic- on the pronunciation of this particular word. And if he couldn't say it, they knew exactly that he was German and therefore very suspect. So I went to uh, Scheveningen, and uh, from there I went to Ravensbrück. So in other words, I tried to trace the footsteps making the adjustments that I knew had to be made so in other words I could get in the car and drive these distances which is all very modern but of course in their time when they were arrested they were dumped on an army lorry jolted down the road uh, until they got to the maximum security prison and then they were subject to the prison regime which wasn't very pleasant in those days because they were dissidents and then they were herded onto a cattle truck and taken, you know, however many hundred miles it is, uh, to Ravensbrook, So that would be something like a three-, four-day journey.
0: This is Hope FM. Well, that's Tchaikovsky's suite number four in G minor, which, of course, is... is in the documentary soon to be released one of one of the things of course that we haven't said uh, James is the is that the motivation for the quarry ten Booms. of course it was their it was their deep christian faith that motivated them to put their their own lives at risk in, in helping the jewish folk um, the what as you were making the film mean lots and lots of highs and things which will lift probably all of us who view it but what are the things that you would cite that that make the story lift the the miracles and the wonderful things that that happened as a result of their actions? I think the thing that came across to me
1: in terms of miracle was the two-dimensional aspect of miracle. Having read the book... And having looked at the locations, I could envisage that certain miracles had happened at certain times in those days, in 1944. So, for example, uh, I know that the uh, sisters had managed to smuggle into Ravensbrück camp a Bible, which was going to be their lifeblood, their life stay, And they'd also smuggled in a very small, opaque bottle, which was a vitamin concentrate. And they depended on these these two artifacts, as it were, not just visually to give them a reminder of the things of God, but they also needed these things very practically. One was a source of nourishment which was lacking in the diet. Because if you exist on just black bread and black coffee, you know, there's not a lot of nutrient or sustenance in that. So consequently, they needed this very small bottle of concentrate, which delivered its content onto a person's tongue, literally droplet by droplet. And it, it was an opaque bottle, so they never knew where the level of the concentrate was. Mm-hmm. Now, the miracle was that it never ran out. They knew that they must have exhausted the very small supply that they'd gone in with. But the miracle was that it, however many people they fed, however many times they used it, that bottle never ran dry. Now, how do you account for that? Well, the only way you can account for that is to relate it to that which happened in the Bible, where there was a widow... And she was granted a measure of oil. And that measure of oil sustained her and her child and a prophet for the duration of a long famine. It never ran dry. The the level never went low until the famine ended and the oil supply dried up. And exactly the same thing happened to the Ten Booms. There was a point where... When a supply, coming th- presumably through the Red Cross, a supply of vitamin tablets came into the barrack, what happened? The oil, the, the, the vitamin concentrate in that tiny bottle ceased. Why? Because it was no longer necessary. So as I, as I looked at that, I related that to the miracle that had happened to me when I was actually making this film or doing the research. Um, There there are two, but I'll, I'll single out one. I had to get into the maximum security prison in Holland, and that was very difficult because obviously maximum security prison you can't just walk in there. Mm. So I was able to present myself to the public relations department as a serious researcher and a member of the press and they were really sympathetic. They wanted to get me into the maximum security prison. Why did I want to go there? Because there was a particular cell that I had to see. It's called cell 601 and the thing about that cell is that it has been preserved since the war in exactly the condition it was when the prisoners were were there. So the question is, how do I, on the outside of the thick walls, get to the inside? Well, I battled all morning with uh, with the very sympathetic people in the public relations department, and at the end of the morning they had to say, look, with deep sorrow and deep regret and we know you're serious, we're just unable to get past the rules which state that the only people allowed in that cell are relatives of prisoners who were kept there. And even they can only get there on one particular day in the year when it's an open day. So I said to them, oh, well, that's really most disappointing because I would love to have just seen it. They said, yes, we do understand, but you can't do it. My wife was working on the project with me. So I went back to the car. I said, Look, it's hopeless. She said, I'll try. I said, Look, I said, I battled all morning with them. I said, They want it. I said, But they can't do it. She said, Let me try. It turned out that she was given full access to the cell. How did she do it? Well, she went down to the gate. And she met a very small knot of people. They were actually contractors, catering contractors. And they had been contracted to supply the food and the refreshments for the open day, which was the following day. So she joined their group. And when the gates opened, she went in with them. Now, naturally, the guard challenged her and said, who are you? And she explained. She said, look, I'm only a researcher, We're making a film, would it be possible for me to have access? And you know she must have got just the right guard who possibly didn't know the regulations or didn't care about the regulations but who wanted to help her. It was strange. He never said a word. He just listened and then he beckoned. And he had this huge bunch of keys and door by door he opened The whole prison up so that she eventually uh, arrived outside cell 601. And she said, Well, rather nervously, can I go in? Still, he said nothing. It's almost like an angel. Perhaps he was. Perhaps he was. Still, he said nothing. He simply took one of these keys from the bunch, opened 601, the door fell open, and he made a gesture with his hand as good as to say, Well, go in, go in. So she went in, and it was an amazing sight. She was stepping back in time. And as she looked, she saw the bunk, and it was one bunk. But remember, there would be about eight or nine people there, so the rest were sleeping on the floor. And there was the atmosphere of at the time. And uh, she had a camera with her, so she said, again, very nervously, can I, can I take photographs? Again, not a word spoken. Just a gesture, as good as to say, help yourself. So she photographed the cell walls, and we still have those photographs because they're precious. But what they show is the mindset of the prisoners of the time. Some of the... They they were like cave paintings, but it was done in in Dutch or German or English. And uh, what it basically showed was the attitude of the people. um, You know, having been incarcerated against their wills uh, in, the, in this place.
0: And, of course, the great miracle um, happened for Corrie Ten Boom herself because she, her sister sadly died, mm. Betsy died in, in Ravensbrook, uh, But Betsy was, uh, or, or Corrie, was released on a, well, they said a clerical error. And then she went on to travel the world to talk. I always, I love to quote that phrase where she said there is no, pit so deep that his love, God's love, is not deeper still. And of course that was the message that she travelled the world with and no doubt which you'll portray in your documentary. Mm. So when can we expect it coming out? We're waiting on two things.
1: The film is actually all ready. It's on the timeline of the computer. It's ready to go but we need two things. One is permission from the Billy Graham organization to be able to incorporate just a very small amount of the footage that they shot in the original film, because it's, for us, it's irreplaceable. We cannot uh, restage that. And the way it's done is particularly moving. But our film is rendered in black and white, because we wanted to give the feel of the period, because we wanted to Take not only our film, but also unusual footage from the time, which of course is all black and white. So it's all got to fit together. So what we've done is um, we've taken, as it were, uh, a copy of the Pilgrim film ahead of getting permission. So we can't screen it. We've rendered it in black and white so that it all fits. So that's one of the things we're waiting on. The other thing we're waiting on is uh, in our research at Ruffensbrook, we found that there were some rather good examples of prisoner art showing the kind of scenes that were, you know, fairly common in, in at that time. You know, people queuing for food, people fighting, people, you know, various things. Now, we contacted the German authorities there, and again, they were really helpful. And they said, look, as far as we're concerned, you can, you, you can use your photographs of those, of those uh, pieces of art, but the problem is, it's the copyright and we don't actually know who owns the copyright to these pieces. So I thought, right, now what do I do? How do I illustrate these scenes? So what I did was, I went to an artist, a friend of mine who lives in France. And I spoke to the artist and I said, look, would you be able, if I describe the scenes so that you've not seen the originals, would you be able to reconstruct, you know, using your own talents, these particular kind of scenes, if I describe where things are and all the rest of it, but make subtle changes? Well, they listened to the brief and they decided that they could do five pictures for me. So I'm just waiting on um, pictures four and five coming through and then we can incorporate those into the film without any fear of copyright.
0: Now, you're hoping that it will be available on YouTube uh, come September? Yes. Uh, of course, you'll be back here in the studio, and uh, and we'll tell a lot more of the of this amazing uh, story. And, and thank you. It's been so great to have you uh, uh, today, James. And look forward to you coming back on Community Now when we will we'll have two hours, James, uh, of talking uh, about the whole thing. And probably maybe by that time get some of the initial uh, reaction from people who've been able to to, to view it. This is Hope FM.